Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to Why Only Listening Is Not Always Enough. Three reasons therapists and counsellors need to lead their clients sometimes. So you may have heard this kind of thing. I had counselling, but the counsellor just sat there, occasionally nodding their head, and I felt frustrated. Or I wanted my therapist to give me some advice, or at least some ideas, but they wanted me to do all the talking. I've had two years of counselling, and now I think I know why I have panic attacks, but I've still got the damn panic attacks. So what's going on with that sort of thing? Why do some practitioners just sit there without offering ideas or opinions or strategies or ways forward? Person-centred counselling and people as flowers. Let's look briefly at the origins of this. In 1928, a book called The Child-Centred School was published. This book was to determine the direction of US and to some extent British education for many years to come. The Child-Centred School borrowed many ideas from 19th century German and Swiss philosophers, such as Frederick Frabel, who believed that children are like flowers in a garden. Kindergarten literally means a garden whose flowers are children. Frabel felt that children, when given a non-threatening environment, would develop their potential through an automatic self-actualizing process. Okay. Self-actualization is an abstract term, meaning the process of establishing oneself as a whole person, able to develop one's abilities and to understand oneself. And of course, the right environment is crucial. Certainly children do need space in which to explore. You know, helicopter parenting in which children um, have little or no unsupervised time or risk-taking opportunities for themselves seems to grow depressed children. See reference one. Mind you, even flowers need an input of sunlight, moisture and nutrients. I'm not sure whether Frabel even had much experience with children, let alone his own kids. Frabel's non-intrusive ethos was a compulsive, almost poetic idea. But as with all oversimplified ideas, the no-strictures idea of child-rearing had its problems. Leave me alone to self-actualize. Self-actualization, it was believed, could only occur if a child was left to develop in their own way. So, hands off. Externally applied discipline or direction and laying down of boundaries would impede this process, it was assumed. Nature should be allowed to take its course and the flowers left to grow unrestrained. And I've used this approach in my real garden with chaotic and jungle-like effects. Actually, it seems children do need direction, boundaries and input. Support and encouragement along with clear boundaries seems to be the optimum parenting approach. See reference two. External discipline, when required within a supportive environment, may be the primer for the self-development of self-discipline, which strongly predicts future success and happiness. See reference three. Maybe flowers need skilled gardeners after all. Gardeners need to make judgment calls, set limits, and when required, apply fertilizer. So how does this apply to therapy? Well, this educational ideology eventually filtered into therapy. Flowers on the couch. 
In the 1950s, Carl Rogers borrowed principles from child-centered education and applied them to psychotherapy. His idea was that if you truly listen to somebody by feeding back or reflecting what they're saying, they then have the opportunity, given enough time, to self-actualize. On no account could the therapist influence the client. Any expression of opinion or hint of direction from the therapist was forbidden as far as client-centered therapy was concerned, or pure client-centered therapy. The therapist was to be a blank screen. What's more, clients were seen as infinitely fragile and to be handled with gloves. I suspect communicating that someone is fragile and vulnerable can lead some clients to become disempowered, but that's just my idea. So, of course, listening to someone in a safe environment is essential and um, it's a vital part of therapy. Trust, rapport and a sense that anything can be expressed is necessary. However, it's just a part. People who are depressed, anxious, angry or addicted need to learn skills to stop their suffering. So feeling safe and supported is vital and being listened to. This is a minimum of good therapy. But some therapeutic ideologies have come to assume this is now all therapy should be and this can cause real problems for some clients. People generally seek therapy because they want to be influenced in ways that help them. In order to self-actualize, that is to develop spare capacity beyond the inner demands of emotional problems, a person needs to, extending our horticultural theme here, develop the means to cut back on unruly fears, prune depressive thinking biases, and trim the borders of personality disorders. So why shouldn't therapists simply sit passively and fight hard not to influence their clients or ever judge them? Because this approach can be not only ineffective, but potentially dangerous. Rumination, ruination. Just listening and reflecting back to a depressed client, if that's all you do, may deepen the depression if it leads them to simply introspect more without necessarily building their resources or hope. See reference four and five. Too much emotionally arousing introspection, rumination, can do people a great deal of harm. See reference six. Purist, person-centered counseling then, may be the last approach depressed people need, see reference 7, although certainly people need space in a trusting environment to vent and discuss their issues. Postmodern ideas about whatever floats your boat and personal choice and everything being equally valid and all that sort of thing may be fine in the art world. Anything and everything can be art to the intellectual. But in therapy, the consequences of naive or incomplete ideology are potentially very serious and have real-world effects. Not getting the help you need uh, when you have gone to a supposed source of expertise may be the most demoralizing thing that you can experience. So here are just three reasons why perhaps practitioners must lead their clients. One, just try not influencing. Is it even possible not to influence other people? Emotion is contagious. If I smile at you, even a micro smile lasting no more than several milliseconds, I will influence you in some way. I may not be conscious of that smile. You may not be conscious of that smile either, but the emotion is still passed from me to you outside of our conscious awareness. If I nod slightly when you tell me how terrible you feel you are, then I may have affirmed in some way your limited perspective of yourself and perhaps reinforced it unconsciously. 
Influence is happening in human interaction, whether we like it or not. It's up to us to use it as effectively as we can. Michael Yatko, a leading researcher of the treatment of depression, said it's not a question of whether a practitioner influences a client, but how they influence a client. They will influence them merely by being in the same room. So let's look a little more closely at this, uh, this idea. Charisma and influence. If you want to do pure client-centered work with a person, you'd better hope that you have very low natural charisma. Charisma is a measure of how expressive and emotionally infectious we are. A charismatic person is likely to make you feel the same way as them. They infect you, as it were, with their prevailing mood. They lead the emotional atmosphere, and they can do so simply by being within eyesight of you, even if they don't say a word and they're not aware of this. High charismatics tend, of course, to be more expressive, which is often conveyed non-verbally through microfacial expressions. There's just something about them that has an effect. Conversely, a low charismatic mood is less infectious. Charisma can be seen then as the quality of transmitting emotion and infecting others with your mood. In one astonishing piece of research, psychologist Howard Friedman devised a test to gauge charisma levels. See reference 8. After testing for charisma, he put a high charismatic person in a room with a low charismatic. They could see each other, but not speak. And they were to be together for just two minutes in this room. They didn't know each other. What he found was that after only two minutes of being in a room together with no speaking, the low charismatic had joined the mood of the high charismatic for better or for worse. In other words, if the high charismatic was in a bad mood or depressed, by the end of the two minutes, the low charismatic would feel worse as well. And if the high charismatic was in a good mood at the beginning of the two minutes, the low charismatic would feel better after 120 seconds. But nobody ever went from low to high charismatic. It never worked the other way. So charisma, it seems, is a relatively constant characteristic. So presumably therapy schools that promote the idea that therapists should not influence their clients would need to weed out charismatic would-be therapists. But anyway, why shouldn't influence happen in counselling? Two, your clients need your influence. Sometimes to be client-led, that is to get a sense of what our client needs, means we must lead the client. We're all of us, after all, led by the needs of our clients. If I'm dying in an emergency, I don't want the paramedic to ask me what I think needs to be done. The paramedic will be led by my needs, but will act, I hope, by influencing me rather directly and fast. Simply listening may be a good starting point for some clients, but those in distress need direction, at least beyond a certain point. So the part of the brain that can generate wider perspective and strategies, and therefore hope, is temporarily disabled in depression. See reference 9. The depressed client needs to um, borrow the brain, as it were, of the therapist to be given access to wider perspectives for a while. Sometimes counselling should include teaching anger management or social assertiveness skills or fast and comfortable trauma or phobia resolution. If the means to help our clients are available in the culture, but we don't use them, can this be said to be ethical? Speaking of which, number three, 
your therapy needs to be clean. It's a basic emotional need to feel accepted and safe with at least one other person in life. Clients need to feel that they uh, what they say is important and have their feelings validated. A client can feel better instantly if their basic needs for attention, intimacy or meaning become met through seeing a therapist. That's not a problem in and of itself. But it is a problem if the therapist remains the client's only source of attention or kindness or sense of intimacy. Not only is this an unsustainable way for them to meet this need, but the fact that the client is feeling better may cause the therapist to misinterpret what's really happening and start to assume it's the process that's working rather than the fact that now the therapist has become the sole source of the completion of these needs. The practitioner needs to understand what's happening and seek to help their client meet these vital needs outside of the therapy room in their wider life. When the client is enabled and encouraged to meet these needs in their wider or real life, they are less likely to become dependent on unconsciously using the practitioner as the sole source of completion of their emotional needs. When this is understood by both counsellor and client, the therapy is said to be clean. Alternatively, if the therapist doesn't see the client's needs clearly, they may assume any lifting of mood is indicative that the passive approach is working. Common sense and clarity must be maintained at all times. Even when we go off script a little, we must know why we're doing it. For some people, just quietly sitting and listening is vital for a while. But the ideological assumption that we shouldn't influence our clients and that therapy has to be painful or encourage emotional ruminations on negative past events is, in my opinion, dangerous. The hallowed therapeutic relationship may feel empty and void for the suicidal client if it's purely passive on the part of the therapist. As Dr. Milton Erickson said, it isn't so much what the therapist does as what he gets his patients to do. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. Mm-hmm.